You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Back to another episode of the Van Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Lurk. If this is your first time here, thanks for checking out the podcast. If you've been here before, welcome back. We appreciate you checking it out again. If you are listening to us on a platform where you can rate and review, we ask that you please do so. It helps us out greatly in the podcast algorithm world. And make sure you check out lambgoat.com to stay up to date on news, releases, and announcements from around the hardcore and metal world. You can go ahead and follow Lambgoat on social media, give us a like on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Lambgoat. We also started a Twitter account for the podcast. Go follow at VanFlipPodcast podcast give us a tweet right now and let us know that you're listening to the podcast or tell us who we should have on next if you are interested in watching podcasts instead of listening all of our episodes are available to watch on the lamb goat youtube channel head over there hit the subscribe button hit the notification bell so you're notified on each and every release that we do at this time i'd like to thank our patreon supporters dylan lachlan chris and jeff Thanks for the support. You guys rock. You guys are awesome. We wouldn't be here without you. If you yourself would like to become a Patreon supporter, not only do you help improve the podcast and the show, but you also get early access to episodes before they are released, an invite to our private Discord chat, some lamb goat swag, and more. We will even shout you out on the podcast for as long as you are a supporter. Visit patreon.com slash thevanflip for more info. In this episode, Alex joins me for a stroll down memory lane with Josh X, Trustkill Records owner and now owner of Bullet Tooth Records. Oh yeah, what's this? I feel this. Oh yeah, this is uh Oh no, Lamb Goat presents the Van Flip Podcast. Welcome back to the Van Flip Podcast. This week, uh, Alex is joining me again for the quarantine special. We have Josh, who is the current record label head of Bullet Tooth, but you may better know him as the owner of Trustkill Records, a very prominent uh, hardcore label in the 90s and 2000s. So, welcome to the show, Josh. How you doing? It's like to be here. Nice to. Thanks for having me. More than welcome. <clears throat> What's up, Alex? Hey, man. I think. Uh, let's see, I met you once, and that was circa two thousand and shit. When was that? I say two thousand four or something. Earlier nope. than that. Maybe. Yeah. I, it was like two thousand. One, two. 2000 or 2001, I want to say. It was a show in Philly. Yeah, some with house show. Walls of Jericho. It's some shit. From Autumn to Ashes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and somebody, well, actually, there were a bunch of bands. I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't um, end up staying for the whole thing. I got like a parking ticket and I went out to, I forget what happened, but, you know, because that was 20 years ago or whatever. But, what I did see was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that was one time I met you. I think I met Carl Severson of Ferret fame. Yeah. and uh, He was at that show as well. John Wiley of Eulogy. Yeah. And the now infamous Alan Landsman. Yeah. Uh, mean Pete was there. Wow. Was he? See, I didn't talk Where to him. Where was this again? Where? What location? Was this at the Stalag? That somewhere. doesn't ring a bell. I'd probably know uh, the name if I heard it, but 
Yeah, it was. It was. It was just so. It was a house, Dave, and like, oh. where was the house? What city? It was, a, it was a veritable house. Well, it was more. It was closer to Upper Darby, which oh, okay. is okay. Okay. Um, like north east Philly, northwest. I don't freaking know. House show, huh? <laughs> house shows with all those bands. Good lord, that's crazy. Well, this was just around that time. From Autumn Nashes was just blowing up, and. It was before they hit their peak, so yeah, I don't freaking know. I didn't go to a lot of shows at houses. <laughs> ever. Although you're talking to Mr. House Show right here, so I sure. guess that's kind of where you got your uh, start, sort of, right? Used to kind of, yeah. Rebel basement was like early night Yeah, so I went to school, uh, went away to college in '92, came back home for the summer in '93. And started doing shows in my parents' basement and did them uh, from 93 to 95. And I'm actually sitting in that basement right now. That was my next question. <laughs> I was wondering if this is the yeah. infamous basement. And this is. So uh, two years ago, I bought my parents' house um, and where I grew up and where I had all those shows. So it's pretty exciting. To be back, nice. and I'm like, you know, doing laundry in the basement in the same room where we <laughs> played. Those walls could talk. And are those the same walls? Same walls, yeah, yeah, they Damn. can talk. Yeah, those walls are still intact after what Earth Crisis, Snapcase, so um, many bands. Yeah, I mean, it, the ba- so. You know, I was 19 years old. I came home from my first summer, and I'm like, hey, mom and dad, can I have some hardcore bands play in the basement? And they were like, all right, why not? The basement, you know, is a piece of shit. Um, all the ceiling tiles were falling down, and the floor was all smashed up, and, it, you know, it didn't really matter. So, um, so yeah, I had 20, 30 shows over the course of two or three years, and then in the late 90s, my parents – um, finally finished the basement and made it look nice. So now it's pretty decent. Now, if like my kid in like twelve years asked me to have bands played on here, I'd be like, hell no, because yeah. now <laughs> it's my house. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. Um, my parents, well, my parents live in a house that's like a hundred twenty years old, and the basement is like a bunker of concrete, so that wouldn't work. But this, so, this, house built, this house is built in 1960, and we've had, there's been a lot of, yeah, a lot of issues and flooding and all kinds of stuff, but, you know, we've uh, slowly been sure getting it back into place. You have an ample amount of parking, then, I take it. <laughs> uh, well, we live, it, it's at a dead end, it's in a cul-de-sac, which helps, um, and it's in the burbs, Um and I think, like, you know, I had a lot of shows, and there were a lot of kids at these shows. I mean, one or two of them, they were probably 150, 200 kids, I want to say. But I feel like everyone was, like, really skinny back then. So they fit in the basement <laughs> equally. <laughs> and I feel like, I... also, you know, we were young, and, like, everyone was carpooling. So I don't think, like, the neighborhood filled up with cars by any means. But I don't know. No one ever really complained. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. I mean, I had I had beer parties with a hundred or two hundred people, but my parents were like in a different country. They would have uh, never uh, 
not only concerts, but just this music, hardcore, punk, whatever you want to call it, yeah. um, that would have revolted them, I think. So, funny story. Uh, one show, it was um, Split Lip, Ashes were on tour together, and I put them on a bill with a bunch of other bands, and, um, you know, my parents were here in the house when I would have shows, and they didn't really mind, um, <laughs> but... That Split Lip Ashes show, those bands got stuck somewhere, like in Connecticut or something, I forget, and they called, and they were like, hey, you know, we're, we're, we can show up, but we're going to be, like, four hours late. We're not going to get there to like, midnight. They're like, is that cool? Like, should we still show up? Is there going to pe- be people there? Can we still play? And I was like, yeah, why not? I don't, it doesn't really bother me. Like, kids will hang around. Like, the shows here were more like, it was more like a, not like a party vibe, but more like a hangout vibe. Um, so I had like, maybe like three bands play and then literally it just, everyone just hung out for three hours and like around midnight split lip and ashes showed up and they played and it was awesome. And there were a hundred kids in the basement screaming their heads off. And I thought for sure my mom was going to kill me in the morning. Um, cause the bands were playing to like two in the morning and their bedroom is right above where the bands play. Um, and the next morning I saw my mom and I was like, I'm really sorry. And she goes for what? And I was like, well, there are bands playing at like two in the morning. And then she was like, Oh, your father and I slept right through it. I guess. <laughs> and I, <laughs> Must have some thick, uh, ceilings or walls. I don't know. We don't, but I think also like all the bodies in the basement, um, so kind of you? muffled the sound a bit. So who knows? Hey, once you're asleep, but, you're asleep, you know? That could be, yeah. You got cool parents, I'll say that. I do, yeah. Very you got cool. your dad, who recently passed away. Um, that, you know, yeah. Our condolences. But your dad was a doctor. Your mom was a lawyer, right? She is, yeah. She's so still practicing. Like, oh, she's still practicing. Okay. So you yeah. you had, like, the Cosby Show thing going on. I kind of did, and I have three older sisters. Oh. Just wow. yeah. Your names were Vanessa and... <laughs> yeah. Whoever the others were, Denise. Yeah, I got the Cosby joke when I was a little kid, mm. of course. Yeah, sorry about that. That's the first <laughs> thing I think I want a doctor and a lawyer are married. Yeah, yeah. So my mom uh, was 19. She was a high school dropout in a biker gang in Brooklyn. Hell yeah. <laughs> and met my dad. He was 29 just got home from medical school in Switzerland and they met um, in the Poconos at one of those like Jewish retreats that you learn about watching uh, Mrs. DeMazel. And <laughs> they met, they met and they were married six months later and years later she went and got her GED. And then she went to law school while she had four kids and um, eventually, yeah, started practicing law. Crazy. That's awesome. And props for mentioning the Poconos. Uh, yeah. I think my parents honeymooned there because they had no money. But later in life, they bought a vacation home there. And I spent like five years of my life going to the Poconos every single freaking weekend to ski. That's um, awesome. And play tennis in the summer. I kind of miss it, but I didn't like it at the time. But in any case, <laughs> I never thought the Poconos would be getting mentioned here. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, 
you went to, correct me if I'm wrong, I have this vague recollection that you went to law school or you started to. Uh, yeah, I went to law school at Syracuse and I graduated in 2001 and had a clerkship lined up with a judge um, here in Monmouth County in Freehold, Judge uh, Lair, and I was really excited about it. Um, and I had, you know, I'd started my record label when I was in college and never intended it to be a job or a career or to pay the bills. It was just for fun. And then I took two years off after college and I went on tour with my bands and I went back to school, to law school, ran the label all through school. And by the time I graduated, I realized, I mean, this was in 2001, so I'd already had a bunch of bands that were selling records and some kind of exciting stuff was going on. Um, yeah, that's when Trust Killed just... I mean, yeah, it was really starting to pop. Um, yeah. And I got a letter from the judge, and it was just, you know, just outlining, you know, what was going to happen when the clerkship was starting and what my duties were. And I was reading it, and I was just like, man, like, you know, when I was in law school, I could easily, like, skip a class if I had to or, you know, work till four in the morning if I had to or, you know, whatever. I just... I just you know, budgeted my time and got things done. But clerking for a judge, you know, that would have been nine, ten hours a day working for a judge and not being able to, you know, uh, work on albums and tours and just everything I was doing with Trust Kill at the time. And so I called my judge and I passed on the clerkship and he was kind of shocked. Um, You're making then, a mistake, son. <laughs> <laughs> a year later, I signed a big distribution deal with Red, and it was awesome. And I'm glad I did that. And I don't no, man, any, you should have signed with Lumberjack. I don't have any regrets. Well, I did sign with Lumberjack. Oh, my four years, story. four years prior. No, no, actually, <laughs> uh, I signed with Lumberjack when they started. Lumberjack started with Trustkill. Oh, and, okay. Um, so Trustkill was part of the original. I think it was eight labels. Um, but when Eric Astor from Art Monk started Lumberjack, it was like the eight exclusive Lumberjack labels. I think it was Trustkill, Art Monk, Gern Blanston, Doghouse, um, and a couple others. I forget. But yeah, and then he ended up selling it to Dirk from Doghouse. And then I Wait. left and yeah. How did Mortem group? Wasn't there a Mortem? So Mortem was like a separate thing um, in the '90s. Explain what Mortem is and for those who don't know. <laughs> Mortem was Mortem was a distribution company, Got just it. like Lumberjack, and then they were actually around before Lumberjack. And then those companies merged at some point, and I think Dirk bought Mortem. Um, and then I'm not really sure what happened after that. I kind yeah. of sorry, Dave. I didn't mean to. Send us down this road. You're good. But yeah, you're more, you're more, Lumberjack was a distribution company, but um, no, I, yeah, I, I, they I were know like those are for the most part, but they were like the uh, hardcore kind of you know our little corner of the world, the distro for distribution right. for. Um, I remember a bunch of labels. and I remember uh, Red when Trustkill started doing it through Red. So that's how I knew both of those. But I didn't know if you were talking about a 
if Mortem was a band or a guy? Or well, no, what happened, I think at some point, well, actually, the two records that I put out um, with Lambgoat were Lumberjack, Mortem, because, yeah, there was some partnership or purchase. I don't know the details, but right around the time I did that, I started getting warnings about that company. Um, I think, in and fact, think- that Sounds of the Underground, I... I was in some back room that I don't know what I drank a lot that day. I don't remember, but I ended up next to Jake Bannon from Converge and we were talking. He's like, they owe me $30,000 and they suck and blah, blah, blah. And I had just put out like an album with them. Um, and then like two years later, they closed up shop and so, yeah, they, they totally screwed everything up. Three years before that, back to 2002, I had been with Lumberjack for like, I don't know, three, four, five years by that point. And that record behind you, I had just put out, Poison the Well, Tear from the Red. I believe that was the last album I put out through Lumberjack. And I just looked at an email (laughs) a couple days ago. I was digging through something. And um, so it was 2002. And... Lumberjack were handling all the pre-orders for the Tear from the Red record and all the retail and basically everything. Um, and, you know, there wasn't any back-end way for me to, like, see how many were selling or where they were going. So I just have to email them and be like, hey, what's going on? So I sent him an email and I said, hey, how's the Poison the Well record going? Um, are we getting pre-orders or, you know, what's going on? And the email I got back from them was basically this like snotty, annoyed email basically saying, we're so fucking overwhelmed from your record that I don't know, but we'll get back to you at some point because I, I, it was some woman and she's like, I, I'm so busy packing up your records that I can't even find out that information for you. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I was like, I guess that's a good news, bad news. Thing. It's a good news, bad news, but that was pretty much the end for me. And then, you know, six months later, I went to Sony, um, and then I ended up having to sue Lumberjack to get the three or four hundred thousand dollars they still owed me that they decided they just didn't want to pay me. Mm. So you guys have both kind of had a situation. Oh, no, oh yeah, every, did. sorry. Basically, every label that was with Lumberjack. At that point in the early mid two thousands, we all had to sue and said aloud, and it was a big disaster. But you know, luckily I got to a company that could handle big records, and mm-hmm. we moved on. Um, so there's a couple things I know that me and Alex have for you specifically. Um, but before we get like super into that, uh, for those who don't really know or too young to really remember explain how like what trust kill was and like the bands that you guys had on your earlier rosters uh you know because to me it's there's a handful of labels uh we've already mentioned most of them already in this podcast but you guys were like the cornerstone for fuck you know like all the hardcore uh metalcore metal stuff you know that i could find outside of you know whatever was on the radio or the TV, which is very borderline underground per se. So just kind of like TV hardcore. That's what I'm saying. Like MTV two, at some point when Trustkill was around, they also had videos, but 
you know, you guys were already out for a while before that happened. So, um, yeah. yeah, just like Remember? explain how you, you know, like Remember? the whole situation with Trusco, like getting it. I mean, you already described how you got it together, but like, you know, what it was. How did it actually blow happened. up? Yeah. Uh, blow up, man. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm too close to it to ever feel that it like blew up, but you know, I was just trying to like keep all the plates spinning and, you know, working for the bands I'd signed and, you know, trying to, you know, build careers. Um, I but, uh, I, just, I mean, can we agree? Can we agree that probably the catalyst for the explosion? And I, I realize you, you didn't see it as an explosion, but perhaps from an outsider's perspective, the catalyst, um, as I see it, was the opposite of December by Poison the Well. Yeah, I, I, I would say that, that was a that was a big turning point. That came out right at the end of '99, early 2000. Um, so I was in law school. It was my second year of law school, and I signed Poison the Well, 18 Visions, and Walls of Jericho in the same month. Yeah, all big, all three big bands from back in the Not day. Three really, but. At the time, to me, that didn't it didn't seem big. I mean, um, well, I guess yeah, they weren't big then. They weren't but... big. I mean, you know, Walls of Jericho had a um, a record out on Gennett. Um, Remember them vaguely. And then Eighteen Visions had their record out on Life Sentence, and Poison the Well had a record out on Good Life. Um, so yeah, I signed this off. one. Where is it? Yeah. Uh, oh. This. Which one? He's pointing Vanity? to a bunch. Of, he's pointing to a bunch distance, of uh, distance. Only makes the heart grow fonder. Oh, farther. that one. Yeah, that. Pointing to posters yeah. behind him. Yeah, I can't see what's. Behind so, him, so yeah. So then in '99, so early 2000, it was like boom, boom, boom. Poison the Well, 18 Visions, Walls of Jericho. Um, trying to think what else came out around that time. I was also heavily involved in doing Hellfest. So I got involved with Hellfest in 98 and then 99 and then 2000 was really like the, yeah, there you go. Hellfest 2000, I think, was like kind of like the pinnacle turn where we were like, oh, shit, this is this is a big deal. Like people were flying in from Europe and South America and Japan and Poison the Well showed up and played songs the opposite of December and just blew the roof off. Like it was funny. I, I remember standing there on stage with Steve Reddy from equal vision and they're on like their second or third song. And the sing-alongs were just insane. I mean, it was, it was deafening and Steve Reddy elbows me and he goes, man, how many records have you sold to theirs? And I was like, not that many <laughs> uh, because I remember that the response and the reaction was way bigger than record sales because at that moment it was when Napster really hit. Um, I was going to say file sharing was a big thing right then. That file sharing just exploded. And yeah, I mean, that, that was really it. Um, people just really knew the band they knew the songs. They didn't necessarily buy the record, um, but you know, sales picked up of course. And then, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree. Um, Opposite of December, then right into Until the Ink Runs Out from 18 Visions, 
Bound Feet the Gag from Walls of Jericho. There's a couple of Throwdown records in there, early Throwdown records. So then Throwdown I signed a little later. That wasn't. Yeah, you did the uh, you did the artwork for that until the record, didn't you? I I did the artwork for almost all my records. Um, uh, you didn't do the opposite of December, man. I did I didn't. Oh wait, I I that may was have. Bannon, heard. wasn't it? It was. No, I don't think it was late? him. I don't think. I think. No, no. I think we talked about no, no. it with Chris. It was someone else, no. maybe. No, no, no. Jake Bannon for sure did the artwork for it, but no. I may have laid. I may have laid it out. So like he did the artwork, and then just like. Okay. Gave it to me, and I. I guess I can look at the credit, Whatever. but I'm pretty sure I'm, it's over <laughs> here. I'm I'm pretty sure it was Bannon who did the no, artwork, but right, he didn't lay it out. Um, but no, Bannon is like mostly responsible for that record until the ink runs out. Um, I forget who who sent me that artwork of like the moth and the paint, and but I got all that, and yeah, I just took that and turned it into some layout i did the same thing with the walls of jericho and i mean pretty much everything from back then i didn't you know i didn't really like hire an artist until 2005 i want to say um but yeah that was uh that was a definitely a turning point and then yeah so i mean you can imagine 2001 rolls around and i'm about to start a clerkship and i was just like nah i can't do that <laughs> yeah and then, yeah, you were saying Tear from the Red was coming out, and then they just got even bigger and bigger. Plus, eight Tear from the Red. They yep. did another record. And... So how yep. many people and... were in the Trustkill office altogether? Is it just you handling, like, the bulk? Or did you have, like, help with, like, booking shows, you know, finding bands, doing any of the uh, everyday office duties and stuff like that that a record label would? So I never really got involved in, in booking tours, Um I had, you know, I worked with some agents early on, um, probably the agent I can, I would say Matt Pike from, um, what was it back then? It was Kenmore, but, um, but yeah, Matt Pike in the early 2000s picked up, you know, a bunch of my bands, um, and then Nick Storch picked up a bunch, so it was probably like, Matt Pike and Nick Storch had the bulk of bands and they were booking all the tours. Um, and I wouldn't get too involved in that. I mean, I would make suggestions, but that was about it or pick support bands or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, let me think 2000, 2002 is when I first hired someone. Um, and it wasn't, it was actually, uh, my friend Kyle and my friend Tim, um, I hired them really just to do mail order because we had this web store um, and I was doing mail order myself on top of everything else. Um, so I hired those two guys to come in and do mail order. And then after that, it was um, trying to think who came after that. I mean, you know, I only ever had five or six people in the office. Um, in fact, I'll use the air quotes because <laughs> I never had an office. I've, I've always worked from home. Um, trust killed, never had any office space. Um, so, you know, everyone would come to my house and work and I had a, I eventually got a sales guy and I got a designer um, I hired Chris Hansen, who does hey, No Sleep. No Sleep Records, yeah. yeah. And, but he, uh, start, he started No Sleep when he was working for me in my basement. Right. 
That's crazy that. that he still does that in that To Catch a Predator show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Have a seat, please. <laughs> I remember Dave. Was there a, Dave was like your... So Dave Camo was my... Business manager. He was like my web guy. Um, and he was working for me. So I met him in Syracuse, and he became one of my best friends. And he was in my band. Um, and he was working for me unofficially, probably starting in like the mid, I mean, I, I registered trustkill.com and built a website and I want to say 95 or 96. And he helped me register the, the .com and helped me build the original site. And then he would go on to develop all everything about trustkill.com. And basically every idea I ever had, he brought to life like, Trust Hill Shows, which turned into Killer Tours. And we had a mobile company called Mobile Threat that he coded. And he coded our message board and our web store and everything. So he was great. Um, and he worked yeah, for the Yeah, you were one of the early uh, web uh, adopters, at least in the music scene. Um, I think yeah, that, that, that really helped uh, Trust Kill take had, off as well. We had videos up on our site. Um, like little quick time samples oh. long before any other label was doing that. Um, thanks to Doug Spangenberg, who would eventually end up filming the Hellfest. Yeah, I was going to say High Roller or something, right? He yep. would start High Roller, yeah. And then um, did some music videos for me for Brothers Keeper and This Is Hell. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, at the peak... Trust Hill had maybe five or six people in my basement. I had a bunch of interns. Um, and then, yeah, that was about it. Some redheaded chick who was always in the artwork. <laughs> chick. Oh, yeah. Ex-wife. <laughs> That's it. I didn't want to. I wasn't. Honestly, I didn't even. I figured. I figured she I was, was like, but I never really knew who she was. Yeah. I just assumed it was your. Uh, you know, significant other at the time, yeah. but then she mysteriously vanished, never to be heard from again. So much yeah. you had to think about it for a little bit. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the sorry one that I that. spent a long time with. Uh, but I want to say, I, I, sorry, Dave, I just want to say two things um, about that time period. Uh, the first is I must uh, thank Josh, as he was one of the first people that sort of gave me any attention whatsoever when I launched this new website. Uh, I do remember, you know, reaching out to a bunch of labels. Some were receptive. Some weren't. I can still remember. Jade Tree basically told me to go away, as did, like, Magic Bullet and a few others. Hydrahead was cool. They sent me a bunch of stuff. But Josh sent me a bunch of um, stuff. And literally, I guess, what's that? Everything behind you right now? <laughs> well, I He's bet you got to I keep it this, all, you know, over the over I the bet time. this Walls of Jericho came from there, and probably opposite December, but the rest came later. I have more, you know, this was like, my basement's a mess, but this was like, uh, you know, five minutes of seeing what I had lying around. Yeah, I should probably explain, uh, like, you're, you're in front of, like, a display <laughs> of posters and memorabilia that have to do, well, I'm assuming, it's, it's with just Josh's a whiteboard thing. that I threw, like, magnets up, but yeah, we got Brother's Keeper here, 
Um, anybody who's anybody remembers Mike Ski getting stabbed. And <laughs> we got that was yeah, the twos. <laughs> Tear from the Red and The Vanity, although this is a Good Life production, the uh, the Vanity yeah. Picture Disc. And is that the other tru- Trust Kill? Oh, this DVD? is a Trust, yeah. trust Kill World uh, oh, nice. Video yeah. Assault. Yeah, and... oh, that's another Doug Spangenberg production. He was all over the place okay. back in the day, though. I remember seeing his name everywhere, it seemed. The unopened Trust Kill Ooh. Takeover Volume 2. That's got a 16-month calendar in it. Ooh. Oh, well, I should get on that. Yeah. You should get on it. Probably a little out. Uh, <laughs> in any case, but I think one of the things that really helped um, get me started was an interview I did with you circa 2000, 2001. I just remember you put it on your homepage, and like that was my biggest uh, – I mean, you put a link to Lamgoat, and that was like my biggest day to that point and sort of got the ball rolling. So awesome. I was always appreciative for that. The second thing I wanted to mention was I think, you know, people look back and they think of the poison, the wells and the walls of Jericho and throw down, et cetera, et cetera. But it's important to point out that you released some really cool shit from some lesser known bands, uh, like disembodied and burn it down. And, um, uh, fuck. Who's the other one that, that bed life or blue eyes. No, I wasn't going to mention them. Uh, damn, there was another band that I wanted to point out. They got Most Precious Blood. No, Most Precious Blood. Yeah, they have Most Precious Blood. And um, Nora was on uh, there. Indecision, of course. Nora. Oh, Actually, Turmoil. I never had... I never, love I never, Turmoil. I never released any Indecision stuff. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, most Precious just, Blood. Just to be clear, but, yeah. But Turmoil was the band I was trying to... Uh, Turmoil, uh, process. Shai, they had Shai Halud on there, ter- uh, This Is yeah, Hell, yep. Terror, um, Hope's Fall. Yeah. You know, you, you did a couple other things that were outside of the hardcore realm for the most part, but still kind of within the vein of... I want to say... Uh, those, those came I a little call later. it hardcore adjacent. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> he was one of them that were putting them out. You know what I mean? Like, where else were you going to find some kind of stuff like that? I it just seemed because, like, out of the labels that we'd already mentioned, like Hydra Head and some other smaller Equal Vision, it, you know, some smaller ones, uh, and I could be completely wrong because it's just me and my friends were listening to this music at the same time, but it felt like Ferret and uh, definitely Trustkill were in the forefront, you know, for labels that kind of handled that type of music. So it was cool. Yeah, to I mean, it was, it was. Expand their ro- roster. Trustkill and Ferret were kind of obviously always interlinked because uh, you know Josh and Carl yep. were good friends, and they kind of blew up around the same time. I, I like Josh got a lot of mileage out of Poison the Well uh, from Auto Nash has really um, helped Ferret blow up, and uh, the other label. Well, I mean, in addition, uh, when I think back to that time, I also think of eulogy recordings mm-hmm. and I mean, there's like equal Revol- vision revelation, and and revelation records uh but i think like eulogy ferret and trust kills in my mind sort of encapsulate um that 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 scene Agreed. now I, I, eulogy I, never blew up to the degree that uh you know ferret and trust kill did Agree. um but 
whatever. It might be because Evergreen Terrace is from here, and it just seemed like Eulogy, because they were on Eulogy at the time, uh, yeah. it just seemed like Eulogy was a smaller label compared yeah, to Yeah, they two. were. I, I mean, but it, I, they are vitally important in, you know, their role is vitally important to the hardcore scene, too. So I didn't want to discredit them, but... No. Well, they had set your goals, so that was probably one of their biggest releases. Yeah, yeah. But that's not on the level of, uh, you know, Bullet for My Valentine or, um, I don't even know, what's the biggest ferret release? Every uh, Time I Die? Yeah, I was going to say, wait, ferret release. Yeah, um, what was the last album ferret, or Every Time I Die put out? Was Devil Wears Prada, Every Time I Die. Oh, the Devil Wears Prada, shit, I forgot about them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they put out the, uh, what was the oddball, uh, God, I can't remember anything anymore. Um, <laughs> what year? Uh, um, in Flames. They put out oh, yeah. an In Flames oh, record. Yeah, yeah. That was Come Clarity. Oh, yeah. that, was a, that was a really good one, in my opinion, I, I should state. That was a really good one. Exactly. I like that one. Has my favorite In Flames song of all time on that record. Which one is that? That is... I want to say it's the first track. I can't remember the title, but um, it was on one. it was on Guitar Hero. Oh, okay, <laughs> I liked come uh, the Clarity one. Come Clarity. That was like the big yeah. video song they had at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just remember at the time one. that was that was such. Sorry, Dave, but I was just gonna say it was such an oddball release, like Ferret putting out in flames. Uh, it was. I mean, they you know Carl really went out on a limb to put that record out. I mean, the band was you know pretty hot at the time selling a lot of records in the states um and they just finished their contract with nuclear blast and were shopping around and they wanted a really big advance um i know because i was negotiating with them as well and i got to a point where i was like nah i'm good um <laughs> but you know carl kept going and wrote them a really big check and you know the record was great and was a big success but I don't know, you know, in hindsight, if he would have done that again. What are but, some uh, What are some of your biggest miss misses as far as like bands and records you didn't like bands you didn't sign, records you didn't put out? That's a good question. Is it a long list or a short list? <laughs> you want me to talk shit? Um, no, I mean, you know. No, I shouldn't say regret. You just regret missing out on putting them out, not that oh, you're necessarily oh, talking oh, shit about I, a band that you put out a record for. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, yeah, like some records I put out that didn't, you know, uh, that didn't sell as much as we wanted to or whatever, but, um, but yeah, I, I got an email from Josh from a day to remember, mm. uh, when they first started and he was, like, he was like, man, I love trust kill. And we just, all we want to do is be a trust kill band. And I just, I don't know. I just, I just didn't love the music or I didn't follow up or I don't know. But so I missed that one. New fun, new this. Um, yeah. And they're, you know, one of my favorite bands. Um, who else? Uh, Did uh, fallout boy ever call you fallout boy. So funny story. Um, so yeah, I, I, signed race trader in the late nineties, which was Pete Wentz's hardcore band from Chicago. With and Andy, I did, Andy was in there too, right? With Andy Hurley. Yep. Um, so it was Andy and 
Pete Wentz and um, this guy named Money. And yeah, great band. Loved them. Was all excited to do a second record. The band quickly broke up. And then Pete and Andy went and started Fall Out Boy. And I found out a year or two later that Pete never sent me a demo because he didn't think I liked pop punk. Mm. Which is weird because I love pop punk and... (laughs) The first couple Trust Hill releases were pop punk releases, so I don't know, but whatever. Um, you know, I wasn't mad at them. Obviously, they went and you know blew well, up. Well, you know, it didn't. Was it Undecided Records that released that first Fallout Boy? Am I uh, no, it was uh, not Undecided. It was um, Uprising. Close. Mm. Uprising. Uprising. Sean Seven v- Angels, Seven Plagues. Shit. Sean Vegenreich put that first record out and I remember and I loved it and yeah, I was bummed, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, well, my point was it didn't really work out for them, the, the label. Uh, so, I mean, it might've worked out temporarily, but it, it didn't yeah. guarantee any sort of longevity or uh, uh, mass fortune. So I guess you didn't miss out. That's, that's hard, man. I mean, look at a label like, like eyeball, um, from New Jersey, they had My Chemical Romance and Thursday, mm. and you, you think that should have propelled that label to stardom, and it didn't. So you know, there's no guarantees. All right, well, Thursday I think became a bigger band later on. After, you know what I mean? After they kind of probably went away for a little bit, I think they people were like, when they went to victory. <laughs> Speaking of that, I guess I should just touch on the. There's many, I guess people that have negative things to say about their record label that they work with, uh, whether it be your record label, Victory, or any other record label that is out there in the world, per se. Um, how do you, like, deal with that, with, like, you know, whether they be bands, if they have the right to say something, or they just want to talk shit? How do you deal with, like, the negative feedback from, you know, people that you had on your roster? And how does it affect, like, when you're looking for new bands, new artists, or, or like, how does it affect your new label going forward? You know? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean that, you know, it sucks when, um, business doesn't necessarily work out the way you want it to work out. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a music business. It's not a music friendship. So when there's money involved and everyone has to pay their rent, um, you know, things can happen. Um, but, you know, I try not to take things too personal, you know, like, um, I mean, anyone who knows me or what I've done for my bands knows that I always make the best effort and try to, you know, do what's right for the band and the record and the music and the guys in the band. Um, and when things go south, I mean, that sucks, but you know, I do what I can do and, and we move on and, you know, um, try to make things happen for the next band. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, um, I don't know. I guess that's, I mean, it. I think, I think we'd be remiss if we, um, you know, didn't, there's been not, not lately because obviously trust kill isn't a thing, but there was some shit talk between, um, you know, hopes fall was one of the more vocal, uh, shit talkers i'll say for um, a lack of eloquent way to put it (laughs) um and i even we 
talk to Chris Hornbrook, you know, in one of these episodes. He didn't have anything to say about the trust kill, but I know, you know, he was probably not a trust kill. Uh, you know, he wasn't president of the fan club <laughs> down the road. And I've gotten phone calls from Rob Fusco where he just made it clear he wasn't a fan. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't – this – if you ask me who the most notorious um, record label is, as far as, I don't want to say mistreatment, but basically, um, you know, relationships ending badly, it's obviously Tony Brummel of Victory Records. Uh, and I, I'm not putting Trustkill in that category at all, but, <laughs> you know, there have been a fair, it does seem like a few of those relationships have soured and... Um, you know, people might say, well, there's where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, I guess, why did, why did you have, you know, falling? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just don't want to be one of those people that like, Hey, you're the best. Everything's perfect. Um, <laughs> thanks Josh. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, why, good. why it was, were they mostly, I assume they were mostly, it, it's always money. Um, so I'll just assume, <laughs> you know, the root of all those things is financial. Uh, I mean, some of it is, some of it isn't. I mean, I remember, you know, the Hope's Fall, the Hope's Fall situation was weird because, um, you know, by the time I put out their third album, actually fourth album, uh, Magnetic North, Jay Forrest was the only guy in the band. Um, the whole band had, I don't know, quit, got kicked out. I don't know what happened, but you know, Jay was the only guy left and, um, you know, we tried really hard to like get them out on tour and support the record. And it was, you know, it was tough. Um, but one of the things I remember that Hope's Fall complained about was that <clears throat> I took a song off the album and used it as a B-side for Japan. And, I remember the time being like, that's so weird because we did the same thing for your last two albums. And we told you, you know, like we had communication and emails with their managers and we're like, Look, you know, we, we can't release this record in Japan if we don't have a bonus track. That's just how things were done back then. Um, and I, I don't know where the miscommunication was, but, you know, most likely it was, managers not relaying the proper information of the band and the band all of a sudden gets surprised by something that they shouldn't have been surprised by. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, hopes fall, you know, their first album came out satellite years and, and we sold, I don't know, 50,000 copies. I want to say, I don't really remember, but it was huge. It, it was a smashing success. And then A-Types was the follow-up record, and it, it didn't really do as well. And by the time Magnetic North came out, you know, the band and the managers were like, well, we got to ship 50,000 records. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, things really fell off. Data retail was bad. And, you know, we got hit with tens of thousands of returns, which, of course, makes a band not recoup. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, there's a lot of issues. Um, as far as Most Precious Blood is concerned and Rob Fusco, that's a weird one because um, 
I don't really know why he's so bad and no one in his band does either. Um, so, I mean, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not, uh, let's say breaking that news to you. You knew no, that? No. Or, okay. I wasn't sure. I was like, maybe he's just punking me, but I, I mean, I haven't talked to him in a while, but it was like, he I was like, say, wanted I was to say, talk about you and his problems with you. Yeah. I and I don't remember what they were. It was just, this dude definitely doesn't like Josh. When they, um, wait, uh, oh yeah, sorry, I'm getting one king down. And most so, most precious blood played. This is hardcore, um, with Rob on vocals, and Rob said something about me on stage, and I was like, what? Um, and then we're in the parking lot after the show, and the band was like. Was like, dude, we have no idea what Rob is talking about. We have no idea. We don't understand. Um, you know, and basically the band was like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to say anything, but the band basically was like, we don't understand what he's so mad about. Um, and I just, you know, rubbed it off, whatever. The next year, this is hardcore. Was it last summer? Was it One King Down was last summer, right? Yeah. And... I'm backstage and I see Rob and he goes, dude, what's up? And shakes my hand and it's like, we're bros. And I was like, well, that's weird. Didn't you talk some shit on stage a year ago? I don't know, but whatever. I mean, you know, I, I have nothing against him other than he has something against me that I don't know about. Um, and the band doesn't really understand. So I just shook his hand and was like, what's up, dude? And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. I never really understood what, I mean, he probably explained it to me, and I just don't remember. But, I don't know. I mean, uh, it, doesn't, I, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if, if, if I'm going back to the last Most Precious Blood album cycle, which is now, we're talking 10 years ago, um, the band had started on the Do Not Resuscitate album, and it was supposed to, you know, the, the process went from taking, you know, two months to two years. Um, and I actually kind of forget all the reasons why the album took so long, but I know, you know, Justin had some health issues and then his job and, you know, they were all scattered about and I don't really know what happened, but, um, you know, Rob's doing vocals somewhere else. The band wasn't even aware that he was starting vocals and it was this very weird way to make an album and it, uh, came out very late, and I don't know what the problem was necessarily with the album release, but who knows? Oh, fuck it. I, I, I don't mean to drag you down this uh, manhole. What's the big deal here? <laughs> Television turned Sorry, on. My, my TV just turned on. That was awesome. Great timing. Uh, yeah, but they, they uh, I, I guess we should have brought it up, or we had to bring it up just because uh, it's still going on. Just because, That's what I do. Uh, yeah, that it's and also uh, where Lamb Goat, but um, there, there's there's a couple um, of different by it too. there's a couple of different bands that have cited uh, issues with the with the label and you know if someone were to Wikipedia you or, or the label or whatever it'd be on there so people would yell at us we didn't bring it up but I know we could talk well, about uh, we could talk about Trustkill and all that stuff for well I just but do you no, have anything was, else Alex that's what I was going to ask if yeah okay. I do um, <laughs> sorry. 
There was one other thing <laughs> that, um, you know, I, I obviously you got bullet tooth going on now. So, um, uh, I want to get there, but, uh, and not have this be three hours long. Um, uh, I forgot what was good. Oh, so for everybody that doesn't know, well, actually here's a quiz for you, Dave. Okay. What do you think? What do you think the three biggest trust kill releases in terms of sales were? Good question. Um, Oh God, I was looking at, I just looked at the, uh, and I know the answer circa 2013. Josh can correct me. Um, All right. I'll, uh, I'll, go ahead, go ahead, I'll go ahead and try to throw them out there. Uh, and again, I'm basing it off of the roster that I'm looking at. And I'm trying to kind of... Okay. I would say... Oh, man. Um, well, you, I would assume really Poison, the well, would, Poison the, the well would have to be in there. Well, no, I'm trying to like guess, but... I'll go with Poison the Well, 18 Visions, and that Hope's Fall record. <laughs> oh, for three. Congrats. Ah, nice. It's probably like Bullet for My Valentine. Oh, um, oh wait. Yeah, you said Poison the Well. That's one of them. Oh, oh well, I'm sorry. Yeah, but I'm that gonna... wasn't in 2013. Oh, in 2013. Oh, that's... No, no, I... No, that, I'm, I'm not asking you to say 2013. I'm just saying that's the last time I had, like, an actual definitive list with album sales. Yeah, but they... But, um, but uh, I know it's changed since then. And Poison the Well hadn't been on that label for a while, right? In 2013? When did they leave Truskill? Well, no, I'm saying these were sales tallies up until, up until 2013. Okay. Yeah, I can't uh, imagine much has changed since then, but... Yeah, well, I'll just say, in 2013, number one was Bullet for My Valentine, um, The Poison, and I guess sales, straight from your mouth, was 665,000. I can't imagine there's been a bigger trust kill seller than that. Nothing nothing even came close. Right. Number two was Bleeding Through, This is Love, This is Murderous, 143,000. That is impressive, because I I was going to say that, but I was like, nah, this only me and my friends were jamming that, but then... Yeah, that, that was a big record for them. And I, yeah, okay. Impressive. Go ahead. Uh, and number three, again, in 2013, was also bleeding through the truth with just short of 100,000. Wow. Now, at the time, Tear from the Red was 82,000, and the opposite of December was 80,000. Um, so I guess that's changed. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at... Or maybe just lied to me in 2013. I haven't I don't looked at those numbers in a while. I mean, that's mostly accurate, but I would say Poison the Well, the opposite of December, would be in there probably right under Bleeding Through. I would, I would uh, say a lot of... Number big, four was Throwdown, Haymaker, okay, and so five I'm, was I'm close. It Dies Today. I'm close. Throwdown. I almost said It Dies Today, too. God, I'm, I'm pretty close. Yeah, probably four, four, five, and six would be... Throw down Haymaker, it dies today, the Cative Choir, and Bleeding Through the Truth. Jeez, all the all those. I mean, outside of I'm not a bullet for my Valentine fan, so I, I didn't really ever listen to them, but like damn, all those other records are like so pivotal. You know, or I don't know, but well, I wouldn't want to say pivotal, but damn, those are from bands that, you know, kind of all this is built on for the most part now. Yeah, bands like Hope's Fall and uh, Walls of Jericho. Um, Second tier sellers. Oh, and, and ter- Terror. All those bands like did great, sold 
tens of thousands of records, but just not, they didn't get up to, you know, 7,500,000. Yeah, bullet for my Valentine. I, I don't, I wouldn't, that is, that blows my mind that it was over half a million uh, sales because uh, just first, I mean, your label, again, no disrespect, was a smaller label, but I mean, that band at the time, I mean, I heard them on Madden, you know, like they were on Madden for a while. This is probably after uh, they left Truskill a little bit. No, no. Oh, they were on no, there? No. Yeah. I assume we got them. That was Madden. like a, that was like a, that was 2005. You had, you had some deal. Um, you know, that wasn't like a homegrown Trust Kill band. No, you got the U.S. rights yeah. to release it or something. Yeah, it, so um, this woman, Julie, in the U.K., signed them to her label, uh, Visible Noise, who also had uh, Bring Me the Horizon and The Lost Prophets, who were big deal back then Ooh, but not, not so much <laughs> now not so much now so yeah she had like those big three english bands and she tried to get me to sign bring me the horizon and i wanted nothing to do with it regret that one as well whoops yeah. whoops <laughs> um and but bullfrey valentine i was like yeah like this is this is awesome we can do something with this and i remember i i asked <laughs> I asked the 18 Visions guys, I was like, hey, you guys played with this band Bullet for My Valentine uh, when you were in somewhere in the UK recently. Like, what'd you guys think? And they were like, man, don't sign those guys. They were terrible, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, you always got to take what got dudes and bands say with a grain of salt. Yeah, they don't want to get outshined, you know, on their own label. Yeah. So I ended up signing them and, um, and yeah, it was, it was huge. So. Um, they were kind of within the Sony system in Europe. And then um, I took over for North America. And then after the Poison came out, uh, oh, wait, I put out uh, the Hand of Blood EP in 2005. And then the Poison came out February 14th, 2006. And then we did the Live at Brixton DVD. And then they were just much too big for me. Um, There's nothing more I could do. They were selling too many records. The Poison mm. sold over a million copies worldwide. Um, and now, did you actually make money on that release, or did you have to pay so much to sign them or to handle the release that it was kind of a wash? No, I made money, but unfortunately that money stopped as soon as they went to to Sony and um, and the Jive. They were on Jive proper um, in the States. Now it's just Sony, whatever. But, um, but yeah, no, we, we made money when it was happening. And then as soon as it was done, that was it. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And that leads me. So, Trust Kill ceased in what 2010 2010 all right so to the you know i remember at the time or i vaguely recall that it was kind of a a surprise um all of a sudden it's like okay i'm no longer running trust kill i have this bullet tooth thing i'm launching and i guess i was never clear or if i was clear i've since forgotten exactly what transpired there um and the same thing happened, I think more or less the same thing happened to Ferret. 
um, to the degree now where we have those two influential, iconic, hardcore labels that are pretty much defunct entities. So if you could just uh, clear that up quickly, I guess, <laughs> without, yeah. without going too long, were you... It was a deal, where, or was it a case of you being in debt uh, because you had overextended Trustkill and it was kind of a, you know, okay, I'll sell it for this amount of money so I can just, um, you know, alleviate that debt and walk away? Uh, what what happened there? No, so um, I originally signed with Sony in 2002. I was there to 2007. And then went to Universal from 2007 to 2010. Um, during the Sony years, obviously, a lot of shit happened. And we sold a lot of records. And we spent a epic ton of money on these records and the bands and the label. Um, so when I made that move from Sony to Universal... I had to have Universal cut a big check to Sony to pay them off, which put me immediately in the hole at Universal. And then we spent the next two to three years trying to get out of that hole and sell records. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the business was kind of falling off a cliff at that point. Um, you know, record sales were plummeting. There was no streaming. Downloads were okay, but you know the, the business was just in a bad spot. Um, and then you had the economic collapse, and these big companies were tightening up checkbooks. And when the time came where they were no longer paying me, um, because it got to the point where they're like, "Listen, you're so unrecouped, we can't pay you," so even if you hit your projections and, you know, your next 10 releases sell exactly what you say they're going to sell, you're still not going to see a penny. So I couldn't, you know, um, pay my staff or pay my rent or put out records or do anything, really. I was, I was pretty stuck. Um, and I spent a good year and a half probably fighting with them and, flying to LA with my lawyer and trying to work things out. And they had a new president who didn't give a shit about my company or my bands. He was a country guy and rap and just didn't understand what I was doing. And they basically just folded their arms and said, no, nah, we're good. Um, we're just going to sell the catalog and that's it. So I had no choice, but to just walk away from it and give them the catalog. Um, and start so you had no no start from scratch no i didn't sell right. anything i at that point it, it was, was already it was already somebody else's the catalog was completely devalued and worthless um we had in the mid to late 2000s we had shipped so many cds to retail um you know when a new release would come out like let's say bleeding through the truth would come out we shipped probably 75,000 CDs and let's say 50,000 came back. I don't know. Um, but we were getting hundreds of thousands of returns. Um, as soon as, you know, the retail landscape was shrinking and target and, you know, all these stores were not carrying CDs anymore. Those all got returned to universal. 
which, you know, was a recoupable expense. Um, so there was no money and there was no value and no one was buying the CDs and no one was downloading them. So it was valueless. So I just walked away and that was really, that was it. So you walked away with no big uh, check without ownership no, was, of the label no you started. There was no ownership and there was no, in fact, it was worse than that because everyone else I had deals with, right? So I had, um, you know, Merch Now was running my web store and we had deals with Revelation. Um, Revelation was manufacturing vinyl and I had distributors in Europe. I was working with Plastic Head and Cargo and Shock in Australia. And, you know, all these people that I had debts to as well. Um, and when I started over, I didn't want to, you know, burn all these people um, that were friends of mine for 10, 15, 20 years, like a Steve Reddy at Merch Now. So um, long story short, I start Bullet Tooth and I have to work my way kind of back to zero with all these companies I had deals with. Mm. So like the first year of Bullet Tooth, I was selling records and merch through our web store to get my debt from Trustkill back to zero. So it was so who was, two, it was really rough. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. Uh, <laughs> well, the whole thing sounds horribly painful, and I imagine it's it's uh, I, you've probably reconciled it a long time ago. But just having yeah. something that you built and it, it sucks, named and, it, and, yeah, and, and now it's it, gone. It's you know I've moved on and got a new thing, and so who know, owns Trustkill now? Like who actually it, owns it? Universal. Universal owns the catalog. Yeah. Okay, so when Rise Records puts out Poison the Well reissues, they go to Universal? Uh, they come to me, and yeah, I've been, I've been kind of like the liaison, and I'm working with Universal to make sure bands are paid and everything's up to date, and there's still so many problems with the Trust Tale catalog for streaming, especially overseas. Um, because of all the expired license deals and companies that went bankrupt, like Shock and SPV in Europe and Roadrunner um, expired, and just you know all this stuff. So it's just it's a giant pain in the ass. And I want these records up and available, and you know get the artist paid. And so I've been trying to you know work with them. It's tough because it's like these companies kind of change, hand, change hands every year or two and there's some new guy involved and then they don't want to do something or whatever. But Why yeah. are you, uh, and part of my confusion, why are you the liaison? Or what if, you know, Universal owns Trustkill, why are you still because involved? They don't, because they don't really know the bands or they don't have the relations. Um, so like, Do they bring you, do they pay you for your time? No, no, no. But, but like, you know, Rise, right? So, um, you know, Matthew at Rise used to be in Roses Are Red on Trust Kill. So he would come to me and be like, hey, we want to do this Poison the Well thing. And, or, you know, Equal Vision came to me and we're like, hey, we want to release this Hope's Fall vinyl. And I'm like, all right. So I just like forward an email to whoever is, 
you know, the product manager at Universal, and we just kind of work something out okay. and get it going. So, yeah. It, so it, Universal it, basically it, took that brand, whatever cachet Trustkill had, and just sat on it, did nothing with it. Sat on it and did nothing with it, yeah. Because I guess they have bigger things to yeah, focus on. Yeah, I don't think it's, their, it, it's not their vibe. From their but... perspective. Yeah, it it sucks. I mean, obviously, I it's not how I wanted it to go. And, you know, Carl has similar things with Ferret. Like, they foreclosed on his label and took all the masters. And that sucks. I mean, it was, yeah, it's a very similar situation. Horrible. Yeah. Well, so you started Bullet Tooth, and oh, can we skip into that. I want. There's something else I'd like to. Interject. Oh, I'm sorry. All right, so go for it. I would be. I've had a question, and I've wanted to know what happened. And we've talked kind of about the festival already, but Hellfest, Hellfest was also a big cornerstone, I think, for. I don't know, man. Not not just hardcore in general, but it was a festival before festivals were a thing. You know, early 2000s. Um, and not we're not we won't, when we when we talk about Hellfest, we're not talking about the one in Europe. We're talking about the one you did in Syracuse for a number of years, and then the last one. Uh, I actually attended that one uh, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, at the Rexplex, and uh, we were lucky enough. My my band won some contest with Radio Takeover, and we got invited up there. We were like the fourth place band. Not we didn't get to play or anything, but we we you know what band. Yeah. Link 182. Yeah, no, I'll send it to you after this is oh. all said and done. I'm not saying it on the podcast. But, uh, 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 yeah, no, it was – she dies in December. Clearly you're, pla- you're very proud of that. that I mean, it is what it is. We had a cover song, and, you know, that was when Baby Got Back. You know, we had heard Baby Got Back, and so we did a cover song similar to that. But, uh, yeah, one thing led to another, and we ended up at Hellfest, and that was one of the biggest – I mean, me and my friends still talk about that today, you know, because we, we drove up from – here from florida to new jersey and like you said people are flying in from all over the world to go to this thing and it was like literally like an insane time it was three days long at least the one i did it was three days long like bands from start to finish and it was like a, i mean that lay the venue was crazy too so it, it was like a whole thing that i think back on but the next year you were supposed to do it at madison square garden correct in 2005 yeah that was a sovereign venue. Oh, okay, I thought it was MSG, but sovereign banks. Oh, okay. So let's. But, but wait, hang on, hang on. Let's let's, let's back up here. So, theory, so Hellfest, Hellfest. I didn't start Hellfest. Um, Hellfest started in Syracuse by uh, a guy named Keith Allen, who was, still pops up on the Lamb Goat message board every <laughs> now and then. So Keith and Hell, Keith Allen started it. Um, it wasn't even called Hellfest. It was called like Syracuse Fest in, I think, 97. And then 98, maybe it was still, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, 98, um, 99, it turned into Hellfest. I got involved in, I think, 98 or 99. And then 2000 was the big one I got involved in. And then 2001, two and three were in Syracuse. Um, 2004, we brought it to New Jersey. After 2004 was done, that was when I decided I was done with Hellfest. Um, and I didn't want to be involved anymore. My label was taking up too much of my time. And that was it. 
So I actually had nothing at all to oh, do with so Hellfest you, 2005. You can't tell me why it fell apart. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you exactly why, but I just want to be clear here that... Right, you weren't I a part of it. I, I was no part of it, um, thankfully, because honestly, when that morning, that morning when we all found out it was being canceled... Like I was psyched. Like mm-hmm. I, we were in my basement about to start packing up the car. Yeah, it was like right away, right? Like right before the the the. It was event. it was it was literally that morning. We were in my office. We were gonna start packing up all the merch. It was a beautiful weekend. I remember I'm like, man, I really don't want to be inside this weekend. I'd rather just be at the beach or something. And I got a call from a booking agent. I think it was Tim Bohr or Nick Storch. One of them called me or Jeremy Holgerson. And was like, yo, what is going on with Hellfast? And I'm like, I don't know. What, what is going on? Was it like an insurance like, thing, right? They didn't secure they're the like, insurance? I don't so supposedly Keith booked this venue in Trenton. I had never even seen it. I didn't know anything about it. Um, it was a huge venue. And supposed to get a $5 million life insurance. Or I'm sorry, $5 million um, insurance policy for the venue which is pretty standard and honestly not that much money, um, which he should have had from ticket sales. And I guess he got a $1 million policy thinking that was going to be good enough. Yeah. I remember that now. And when he, the story goes, when he showed up to the venue with the policy in his hand, they wouldn't unlock the gates. And they were like, no, we told you it says in the contract, 5 million, we need 5 million policy or we're not opening the gates. And for some reason, he couldn't go get a $5 million policy. I have no idea why. Wow. And then the whole thing got canceled, and it sucks. Um, there were like a few of my bands who were supposed to play, and it would have been a great weekend, but, you know, that was it. And a lot of bands got rerouted and played shows in Philly. And, but, yeah, that it's was a bummer. A, yeah, that was an epic, uh, like an epic show, man. I, I, I think back in 2004, of- it was fun. Oh yeah, and the, you know what's really big bummer about that festival too? Uh, not that festival, but I mean, High Roller was doing the DVDs, and I was so stu- so psyched to like not only attend it, the the event, but like later on, I was going to be like, oh, I can't wait to get the DVD because I had the previous as DVDs too. And then oh, yeah. here we are, <laughs> 2020, and I mean, Sonny of Hate Hate Five Six has the footage, and he's slowly you know doing his his thing with it but like oh my god i've been chomping at the bit to get some of those sets you know oh yeah doug spent doug and sean from radio takeover spent a lot of money and time filming 2004 and i don't really remember why they never finished or whatever happened but i think shortly thereafter radio takeover actually wait no radio takeover went under because of Hellfest 2005 that never happened. I would assume so. Yeah, they were like a sponsor or something. They were the they were the main sponsor, heavily invested, and in, I don't know really what happened, but um, but yeah, the fact that all that footage is going to start coming out is awesome. Did you did you watch um, Bad Luck? Uh, you know what? That was the infamous like riot, uh, and I did not. I was not there during that set. No, but I, I mean, I heard about it afterwards, and since then I've seen the YouTube videos and stuff, but I was probably too no. busy, like, on standing on one of those big-ass indoor hockey-slash-soccer uh, fields watching Under Oath or something like that, because that, that's, yeah. like that's one of the memorable 
sets, I guess, because they had just put out Chasing Safety, and I wasn't too sure how the community would take that record, you know, uh, coming yeah. from, like, until uh, the, the ones pr- prior to that, to that one, but it, that, it stood out. And, and, you know, you also got, they also had Dry Kill Logic was a band that played that festival, and I thought that was so weird, because they were, like, a new metal band from, I guess, that area. Yeah, and yeah I had... we started start getting so weird, I mean... You know, the festival got big, and then all of a sudden it was like, all right, well, you know, you're talking to this one agent, and he's like, all right, well, you want this band. Well, how about this band? And you end up starting to put on bands that kind of stick out a little bit. Like, I remember Life of Agony played 2004, and I just remember, them, like, the band themselves being a bunch of pricks. Um, you know, it's like you got all these, like, you know, young dudes and bands, like, it dies today, and everyone's so nice and everyone, you know, I think it's, I don't know. And like, I, I went up on stage and one of the guys in life of agony was just like a total prick. And I'm like, Ugh, why do we even book you guys? <clears throat> well, I mean, props to the dry kill logic thing. That was probably the only time I would have ever gotten to see them live. And by that time I had somewhat moved on from new metal. So to see them, me and my best friend, my be- current best friend, and at the time that was like so mind blowing that they were there. <laughs> so we definitely caught that set, even though I think it was like, in a gym somewhere or, or some weird that venue was I can't I try to explain it to people what the Rexplex was I guess at the time but like there were birthday parties going on and some kind of weird second story situation a paintball um, yeah it was wild yeah just, it was huge crazy. it was such a cool place <laughs> well I think the takeaway is Keith fucked all that up not you um, you got out just in time uh, <laughs> yeah, glad I was not involved in 05 because that would have sucked. You could have saved it. Yeah. Could have saved it. <laughs> I still see people asking him where the Hellfest money is. Yeah, in any case. I, I don't know what he did with it. I don't know why he didn't return kids' ticket money. I, I, maybe he did. I, I don't know what the story is, but. I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, okay, so Bullet Tooth. Um,. We had one of your bands on already. Yeah. You did. You guys had Minefield on. That was cool. I watched that. And your ex-band, Memphis Mayfire, we had Maddie on. Oh, nice. When was that? Like our Uh, fifth one or something. Way early on. I think it was like number five or six. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. About a year ago. Selling his uh, pomade or however you pronounce it. Pomade. Pomade. Is that how it is? Yeah. Someone told me. Someone told me the fun, the, uh, the fancy proper pronunciation is I don't know maybe I'm just tripping right now straight tripping dog the minefield guys are almost done with their album I actually just saw the, uh, the final cover artwork today for it it looks sick did they record it uh, with uh, in shed sounds or did they go to a studio they went to a studio no so I've heard demos but I don't know if those are like the beginnings of the actual songs or if they're starting over from scratch, but, um, but yeah, they're doing it at shed sound. Um, and songs sound awesome. It's heavy as balls and it's great. Love yeah, it. Yeah. They're a great, um, hardcore metal slash crossover band. Uh, that seems to be all yeah. the rage currently the crossover. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you know, what I'm into, like, I've always loved that, you know, like the Marauder, mm-hmm. Leeway, All Out War. Freaking Master Killer, man. 
master killer that all that shit is you know so like yeah i heard minefield and i was like fuck these guys are awesome i went and saw them play in front of like 10 people it was awful but the band ruled <laughs> yeah we talked about that on their podcast <laughs> yeah. i mean i'm used to it i you know i signed a band once um called six city from winnipeg mm-hmm. i don't know they were like a late 2000s trust kill band and um I went and saw them play, and I was the only one there that saw them play. Nice. They came all the way down from Winnipeg to Asbury Park to play a show so I could see them, and I was the only one there. They came from Winnipeg. They drove from Winnipeg. Yeah, so I'm, like, emailing with these dudes, and I was, like, way into them, and I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm way into this. I was like, if you guys are in the area, let me know. I'll come check you out, thinking, like, you know, whenever they're going to get a tour and be in New Jersey, they'll let me know. And like a month later, they're like, Hey, we're playing uh, Asbury park this weekend. Come check us out. And I'm like, awesome. That was quick. So I went to see them play. And that's when I found out that they booked the show just for me to see them. Oh, <laughs> Slick. And I was like, Oh, all right. Um, but yeah, so I'm used to seeing bands play for nobody. It's fine. I, especially in this kind of genre, you know, there's the you, yeah. the shows are kind of small. Maybe so that's when the, maybe, uh, maybe that's the new maybe that's the new world anyway. Bands playing for nobody. Online. When are we gonna now. hear? Uh, will there ever be new Earth Crisis? Will there ever? That is a great question. So, hmm. Yeah. Um, so the last Earth Crisis release was. The the new Ethic seven inch and EP that I put out on Bullet Tooth, which was 2015, and it was four songs, um, two songs re-recorded from their first seven inch, and two songs re-recorded from their first demo that were never released. Um, so that was cool, but not necessarily new music if you're a huge Earth Crisis fan, which I am, and I've always wanted new music. Um, yeah, I've been bugging them for years. Um, it's tough. They all live in different areas, and I don't know. The vibe, I get, get they're not sure that people really, that their fans really want new Earth Crisis music, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I love all yeah. the newer stuff. But you get into a situation where you feel like you're risking your legacy. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of I where they are. They, you know, they still play obviously here and there, and like the California Takeover they just did, and they're one of those bands that kind of knows what their fans want, and they, you know, they have like a forty-five minute to an hour long set list of songs that they have to play. Um, yep. or people are going to get mad. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I, I hope it happens. We'll see. How about uh, any new First Blood music ever coming? First Blood? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Probably, yeah. I mean, Carl lives in Sweden, I think. Yeah, it seems like all they ever do is play shows in Europe, and that's the existence. Yeah, because he moved to Sweden a couple years ago, and... Um, and yeah, I don't know. They, I wish they would tour the states so I could see them again. But yeah, and I know. guess uh, 
now that Justin is a big shot, most precious blood is on ice, save for maybe an occasional This Is Hardcore appearance or something. Yeah, and they played, like, Back to School Jam um, this past fall with Tom on vocals instead of Rob. And when I say big shot, for anybody who doesn't know, he's a, a New York City councilman. Yeah, I was going to say he's a politician now. It's not a big deal to be uh, fronting the hardcore band, I don't think, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, he doesn't hide his past, but yeah. He... Can't be doing it currently, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah it's been a while. I mean, I, I would love new music from them, but I doubt it. Um, yeah. Well, what's, what's – I mean, Bullet Tooth, I guess, as far as if you compare Trust Kill to Bullet Tooth, just speaking of your schedule, it seems like, you know, Bullet Tooth's quiet. Um, so yeah, what, I mean, you're not working on Bullet Tooth uh, 10 hours a day. Maybe you are, but I don't think you are. What are you, what are you no, doing no. yourself these days? No, I mean, you know, I used to put out 10, 12 records a year and hustle and, you know, work 12 hours a day, but I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and putting out records is expensive. And, you know, so I luckily with streaming revenue, um, my, the company's income is a little more stable than it was, let's say five, 10, 15 years ago. Whereas, you know, in the two thousands, I was putting out dozens of records because I had to, and I had to maintain that overhead and just keep pumping out records. Where now there's revenue coming in from streaming on the whole catalog, so I kind of you be a little more be a little more cheeky with the bands I'm working with, and so yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have to sign, but I can sign bands when I want. So like, if I find something I like, like you know, like Minefield or you know. Um, Death Ray Vision, those guys came to me and were like, yeah, we got this new band. I'm like, this sounds awesome. Let's do it. So, right. so you're, in a, you're in a place of freedom, uh, which sounds yeah, nice. Yeah, it's a little more free. That's exactly what it is. So, you know, obviously I'm older now. I'm not in my 20s. I'm in my 40s. I don't want to work as hard. I got a six-year-old and a wife. And, you know, I like snowboarding and mountain biking and going to shows and whatever else I like to do. Um, but yeah, I'm not working on the label 10 hours a day anymore. Um, you know, it obviously takes time and putting out records takes a lot of time. I'm just not putting out as many. Yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, I guess that brings us full circle. I had interviewed you when you launched Bullet Tooth in 2010. So obviously that's 10 years ago. And I, the last question of the interview was, when Lambgoat interviews you in 2020, what will we be talking about? <laughs> Did I say something about, I remember that. <laughs> so here we are in 2020. I guess I'm just going to read your answer. We planned that perfectly, huh? Uh, I, no, I actually just thought of this during the interview. <laughs> I was like Googling, find this thing. But uh, you said, I hope we will be talking about more successes with new bands and how kids appreciate music enough to pay for it. Eh. I don't know about kids <laughs> paying for music. I guess they sort of do. It's just now they pay for Apple Music or Spotify. Hey, I, think, I think kids these days are buying vinyl more than they did when I was true. a kid. I mean, 
there's that, there's obviously that. But if a kid can spend ten bucks a month on music, I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah, I hear you. As long as somebody's paying something. Yeah. And if you know some of these companies would actually kick a little more to the artist. Um, well, they can't until kids want to pay more than ten bucks a month. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So. Uh, I don't even want to go down that road. Uh, yeah. I don't want to interrupt your answer. So, uh, <laughs> <we're outside. laughs> hit us. That is really that is really all I can ask for. Maybe I'll also drive to the Lamb Goat office in my all electric car. Um, do you own an electric car? I don't. No. Well, hey, then, but, so but much. Kudos, kudos for the foresight to, to see that we would have a, a well, not a prominent electric car, but we have an option. That's true. Sure. Got lots. Well, uh, Drive to the land good office in my all electric all electric car with the first female U.S. president in office. Uh, well, kind we got close. close. Didn't happen. Um, unemployment at an all time low. <laughs> that uh, I guess maybe at the beginning of twenty twenty. I don't even know where that stood, but now with the uh, the COVID thing, obviously uh, we're that, at all time high. He must have been writing for the Simpsons or something. <laughs> Simpsons did it. And no overseas overseas wars. I guess that's kind of true. And uh, but that may be too much to hope for in just ten years. Uh, I think you were right on right on target there. So I guess I guess we've got to. We'll definitely have to sit down in twenty thirty. Do you have any <laughs> predictions for uh, twenty thirty so we can discuss those and how wrong you were? Twenty thirty. Well, I hope we're all not sitting indoors in twenty thirty. No pandemic. And then I can actually drive to the Lamb Goat office, the Lamb Goat high rise in Manhattan. Mm, yeah, I good, think that'll be a good time. I think more like a cardboard box in Bed Stuy, but <laughs> and uh, I twenty thirty, we should be able to just like beam people wherever, right? Yeah, that's well, not too much to ask for in ten years. So we'll do the Charlie's Chocolate and the uh, the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yeah. thing like disassemble and reassemble. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, hey, man, I always wanted to say, like, Lamb Goat, to me, I look at Lamb Goat every single day for the last 20 years. Um, it's my go-to news source. I love it. I've always loved what you've done with it. I love the podcast. It's awesome. Hey, do you, think, do you think that he should update the website, that. or should he keep it the 2000, 2005? <laughs> I, I've waited so long to put a new website out. I'm like totally retro and Don't ever classic. And it's like you you waited so long. You it's went, coming back around. The pendulum swung back. Well, yeah, but do you know how much abuse I take? Um, just that uh, basically that the the average message board user sums it up this way: I had a good thing going on in 2008, and I sat on my laurels and let it all turn to shit, and now it's just well, it's shit and got the same old website and i don't put enough time into it and yeah so i basically screwed it all up which is fair it isn't even my full-time job uh but i do appreciate you coming for 20 years and and as i mentioned earlier i owe you know some of my success if you want to call it that to you so i appreciate that and hopefully we'll both be uh in business in some respect with music and 2030 mm -hmm. and uh oh yeah we can see what happens yeah awesome i would well, also thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having me yeah you're more than welcome. i would also like to say thank you as well uh without 
without all your bands, I wouldn't have stole news from Lamb Goat early on and made my own website, and uh, which was really weird when you texted me uh, screenshots of like our old emails from freaking 2001, <laughs> which was mind-blowing, by the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I saved everything. Save everything. That's crazy. Yeah. I, well, that's what I said to Dave. He's like, he's like, Josh had this web, uh, this email from you know my when I was running a website, and that's pretty much my response. Once you've been in business a bit, you learn to save everything because you're gonna need it. You're gonna need to rip out that proof at some point. Yeah. Uh, if you emailed me or wrote me a letter since the mid nineties. I still have it. Yeah. I was say that was like a 2001 email or something. It was crazy. It, and again, yeah. a lot of, a lot of my traffic to my website came from, I think that banner ad share that we had talked about in that email. You sent me. So, really? Ooh, yeah. That's awesome. Banner ad shares, link exchanges. Yeah. We were doing it. There was no money. I mean, like, again, there was no money being tossed around. I mean, you were a record label, so you probably had a tiny bit of money, but yeah, as far as like, there was no. We, I, I'm sure you well, did it for the love back in the day, back in the early days, and then I I was doing it for the love. I didn't get paid anything other than like your free care packages of CDs that I would receive for reviews and stuff like that. But other than that, well, Trustkill paid Lambgoat some money, Dave. Ah, oh, well, I didn't have a big right. enough website. My my little puny yeah. HRN website wasn't as dominant. I <laughs> I had to steal the news from you. They weren't giving it to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now everybody just yeah. I don't even want to go there. It's a lost art form getting news from for hardcore and metal. But yeah, I think this is a great place to end. Um, All right, guys. What should we be on the lookout for uh, for Bullet Tooth? Other than we already said, Minefield is going to have uh, so a we got this, coming out. Yeah, we got this Minefield album coming out. Uh, probably, I'm going to say summer or fall. And I got a new album coming out from that band, Throw the Fight, from Minneapolis. Um, that's coming out August 7th. Um, and I got a new single coming out from that band Ritual from, uh, Canada, Matt from Dead and Divine's newer band. Um, and, uh, and some other stuff I'm working on. Cool. Oh, I totally forgot. I totally forgot to ask. What are you listening to now? Oh, shit. I uh, love that new Drain record on Revelation. Cool. It's awesome. Good album. Um, oh, shit. Uh, what else? The new story so far I like, or the new-ish story so far. Um, the newest Four Years Strong. Um, I haven't heard that one yet. What else? Um, oh, man. Um If you dug That's that, fun. if you dug that drain, I, record, I don't want to. I don't want to. what record? If you dug that drain record, uh, there's another one, kind of not similar, but in the same kind of like punkish, you know, avenue. Uh, Verbal Razors just had one that was pretty damn good, and I'm not a I'll big fan it. of that kind of sound, but those two records stood out to me the most from that like, <laughs> genre. Um, question though, I, not to, I mean, not to keep you on here a little more, but we just talked about like you said you're releasing a single. Uh, we had in, we had Frankie from Imur on here recently uh, last week, and do you think the future of like hardcore, or I shouldn't say hardcore, but like bands, is releasing singles over a set period of time, or is it albums, like releasing full albums? It depends on the band. Um, you know, some bands 
probably don't need to be putting out albums. I mean, singles is fine if you're, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, most hardcore and metal bands should still be putting out albums. I mean, we love albums. We want to listen to an album front start to finish, you know, listen to why the band put those songs in the order they did. And we just want the package and we want the vinyl and we want the t-shirt and we just want all that stuff that goes along with the album. But like, you know, pop bands and country crossover and, and, you know, hip hop and things like that. I mean, I just don't see why you'd put a record out. I mean, Drake can put out a single every month and no one will really bat an eye. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I I was just curious Um, as a, as a label head, you know, like, what you may think yeah, I, the future will behold. I, I love albums. I always want to do albums. I always want to do the physical release, whether it's a CD, a vinyl, a cassette, uh, whatever the hell it's going to be. Um, but I mean, at the same time, we now have the option where we can, you know, like with this Throw the Fight record, I mean, they're not really like a hardcore band. I mean, they're more like a hardcore adjacent kind of warp tour, you know, octane kind of band but um you know we have the ability to put out an, a full-length album from them but also release a couple singles beforehand and it's not you know we we can do that with spotify and apple and amazon and i, I like that option you know mm-hmm. i was just curious because you know it is what it is the times change and streaming's a thing and you know physical sales i i, I mean i'm one of the physical media kind of pr- people and i feel like a lot of older dudes like us in hardcore and metal they are also like that but like i said earlier yeah. a lot of kids are starting to buy physical think, media too so i think our hardcore metal dudes are you know we're not casual music fans we're <laughs> lifelong music fans that want to be involved with the band and learn about the band yeah. and know everything about it and wear the t-shirt and that's not really you know your casual music fan who heard trapped on the radio 20 years ago. We can't get away from that. We can't, we're going to bring it up every damn episode. I just, you know, <laughs> it's my, my go. Thank you. We almost went this entire thing without mentioning trap. There's so. no reason a sure. band like that needs to put an album out. Like just drop a single. Your casual music fan is going to put it on their playlist and that's it. Mm-hmm. And you, you survive and you live on playlists. Um, there's no point in putting out a record. I see that. I mean, yeah, and you make a good point as well as just like this. Fans of these genres act a little different than like fans of major music, you know, pop, hip hop, or I mean, and again, uh, sub genres of music probably act the same, but obscure bands and stuff like that that people like they they do like to fully dive into. So, yeah. Well, Alex, do you have help. anything else before we cut no. Josh loose? It's been like I'll an see you in uh, 2030, Josh. Well, actually, I'll probably see you on Twitter tomorrow, but hey. hey we, <laughs> all, uh, we, all should, we all should meet up for Furnace Fest, you know, the 40-year-old 40, the 40 uh, dude hangout that's possibly going to happen that's, in September. If Furnace Fest happens, we'll be there. We'll, uh, we'll have another podcast. Yeah, I definitely will be there. I'm trying to talk Alex into making the trip. To we'll just have to be like ten feet apart and shit. We got our hotel months ago. Oof, I gotta, nice. get, I gotta get on it. I was, I was, I was yeah, kind of betting that the the virus would take everything out for the year, but that's the one festival I was hoping doesn't get canceled. <laughs> Dude, hopes fall. Eighteen visions. Everybody, everyone in yeah. open hand. 
Yeah, I got into that and, band much recently. By the way, I I picked up that, that oh, album. Man. Yeah, Open Hand. Uh, the first one you guys pre, put out. I picked pre it up. Pre Seosin. It was yeah. good. It was good shit. Well, well, fingers crossed for Furnace Fest then. Exactly. And Josh, thanks for thanks fingers for crossed for for any fest. Yeah, oh yeah, fingers crossed for humanity. I fingers crossed say. crossed for a crowd that Scott Vogel can stage dive into. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it. maximum stage dives. Yeah, <laughs> worth it. Well, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for being flexible on our rescheduling, Hi, and uh, we'll touch no base again. Hi man. Thanks, Josh. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.